We are here at last, the week of the special election for issue one, the sinister move by Frank LaRose and Matt Huffman to take away the power of our votes. It's time to get to the election booth. If you haven't voted early, come tomorrow. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Courtney Astafi, Layla Atasi, and Lisa Garvin. Lots to talk about from interesting stories we published over the weekend. Let's begin. When nursing homes received a giant cash bonanza in the latest state budget, we wondered whether their lobbyists were back in action after seemingly having fallen out of favor. We have a good idea of the answer now, courtesy of a story by reporter Jake Zuckerman. Pretty outrageous, I'd say, Lisa. Yeah, and the timing is really suspicious as well. So House Finance Committee Chair Jay Edwards, a Republican from Athens County, has received $465,000 in campaign contributions from executives of several nursing home operators. This all happened in a very short time. It happened three weeks after the House won a battle over the amount of money that nursing homes will receive via the Medicare base rate. So uh, they got an average of $688 million a year. That's lower than the $715 million the House wanted, but not much. But it was much higher than the $301 million being proposed in the Senate. So Edwards received 30 checks for the maximum amount of $15,500 between July 18th and July 27th. And he's raised more funds than many people, about $1.2 million, despite being term limited in two years, but he says he'll probably run for Senate. So a lot of these donations came from big nursing homes. Foundations Health Solution owns dozens of Ohio nursing homes. At least five five executives gave the legal $15,500 maximum amount. Um, then uh, there, but the two of the people that gave money paid $19.5 million back in 2017 to set a, settle a Medicare fraud allegation, and they're under a corporate integrity agreement. O'Neill Healthcare, which has six Ohio nursing homes, four checks from the North Ridgeville owners, Amherst Meadows Skilled Nursing and Rehab in Massillon, they got a, he got a check from a 9% stakeholder. And this is a place where a resident in a wheelchair was left outside in 94 degree heat for one and a half hours. But they say the donation is not related to this isolated incident. Sabre Healthcare, seven executives there wrote checks to Edwards. They have no comment on why they did that. Embassy Healthcare, which is a big one, 40 homes in several states, five executives gave that money. And this is a group that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services found that they their failure to quarantine COVID patients and test them likely contributed to an outbreak and 20 deaths in the Embassy of Newark. So yeah, he raked in the money. But like I said, the timing, very suspicious here. Well, it's hard to be outraged about what goes on in Columbus anymore because everything they do is an outrage. But this is an outrage. This is another sign that they're just for sale. They don't serve the people. They serve the people who pay them. And they've learned nothing from HB6, I guess, because there were no real consequences to anybody except a few. It's just discouraging. If you think these folks are down there doing the people's business. They're not. They they got the legislation they wanted. They're paying people back with gigantic campaign contributions. For a little while, the nursing home lobby, which had become pretty well known for being abusive, had fallen out of favor. They weren't getting those big cash outlays, partly during the Kasich administration. But man, they're 
the amount of money that they're paying and the amount of mm. money that got flooded into that budget with no accountability. Remember, mm-hmm. we right. had said at the time, why, why not have some accountability? Why not make sure that what you're paying the nursing home for that we get, they didn't because it's going to go into the executive's pockets like the last last times they got big money. Very discouraging. Great reporting by Jake Zuckerman, but this state government does not represent us anymore. That's why issue one is so important. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We mentioned the absurd ad on social media about the porn moms of Shaker Heights on Friday, a ridiculous lie aimed at passing issue one tomorrow. Lucas Deprile told the story of where this came from. Layla, what is the backstory? This all originated from a pseudo-news website called The Cleveland Reporter, which is affiliated with The Buckeye Reporter. Listeners will, will probably remember from Andrew Tobias's reporting that The Buckeye Reporter is part of the Metric Media Foundation, which operates as a front for conservative dark money groups. The story that ran back in May in The Cleveland Reporter doesn't have an author affiliated with it and, and and doesn't tell us whether they tried to reach out to the groups that were named here. But the primary target of the article is the founder of Red Wine and Blue, which the Cleveland reporter dubbed a pro-school porn moms group. And it pointed out that this group is, is urging voters to reject issue one. That took on a life of its own, of course, when it hit social media recently. There it morphed into the messaging that porn moms are against issue one. So vote yes on Tuesday. Red, Wine, and Blue is is really a multi-state group that seeks to build support for liberal causes among suburban women in swing states. They are not porn moms. Among their causes, they publicly oppose book bans and they offer access to banned books. One of them is Maya Kobabi's Gender Queer and, uh, uh, and Juno Dawson's This Book is Gay. Gender Queer is an award-winning graphic novel primarily about the author's journey in identifying as non-binary, but it is perhaps the most frequently banned book because it includes depictions of oral sex on several pages. But because Red, Wine, and Blue is opposed to banning books, including books like Genderqueer, they ended up with this porn mom's moniker, which has now been weaponized against issue one. Yeah, this is leap after leap after leap. Or I'm sorry, I should say in favor of issue one. <laughs> yeah, it's they, they just make so many leaps to get to the title "Porn Moms of Shaker Heights." It's ridiculous. Right. It was from the from the get go. I we I also mentioned when when we brought this up last week on the social media ads. It's not just a picture of one of the moms. They also have signs for Black Lives Matter. It's like they're trying to to put every dog whistle they can into this ad to try and get people to vote for it. I do get back to the question I asked last week. This is so over the top. Does it backfire? Does this really effectively change a vote or are Ohioans smart enough to see this for what it is? A ridiculous lie trying to get issue one passed. I think that the people who, who saw this messaging and uh, were felt aligned with it, we're going to vote yes anyway on issue one. I don't know how how you guys feel about that, but I, I just don't think that we're talking about a, that there's no, these aren't the folks who were in the middle, in the gray area. I think this was 
probably targeted toward a certain certain demographic. Well, it's also, I think, because they don't really have an argument to make for issue one. There is no legitimate argument for issue one. We've debunked everything they've tried to say. So they're reaching. The people who are against issue one have made a very strong case. And the people who are for it have nothing. It's hollow. It just sounds ridiculous when they try to explain it. You're taking away the value of the vote. Why on earth would anybody give up their power? Mm-hmm. You're listening to Today in Ohio. It's too bad Laura Johnston is not here today to talk about this story. She's off for the week. What unlikely influencer has come out with a thoughtful approach to fixing childcare? The chief goal of rethinking childcare, the series that Laura has coordinated this year. Courtney. Yeah, the Ohio Chamber of Commerce is working to be a player here in the childcare realm. And the chamber wants to increase the number of folks who are in the workforce. And that's kind of the bottom line goal here. But they say one of the big ways to do that is to address the lack of access to affordable childcare. So they're forming some working groups. They're talking with some people down in Columbus. They're still in the early stages, but it sounds like they're really trying to lay out a roadmap to how Ohio can, you know, stoke more affordable childcare businesses, bring more affordable childcare workers into the space and and just round this out because our numbers and our workforce participation is not where the chamber wants it to be. So, oh, go ahead. Well, that, that's the point that we've been making in Rethinking Child Care is that this just makes good economic sense. Why would Republicans be against it? The Senate president, Matt Huffman, is on the record as being against subsidizing child care. But if you read our stories, this is a no brainer. You, you boost your economy, whatever investment you make in it, you get back in the taxes on all the people that who want to enter the workforce, but can't afford it because of childcare. It it seems like this is an automatic for the chamber of commerce. And we were wondering why aren't business people coming out in favor of this? It's so good to see one group that has. Yeah, and, and when you talk about Ohio's post-pandemic labor force landscape, we're still about 100,000 workers down than where we were out at in February 2020. We, we still have record low unemployment. We've regained all the jobs we lost to the pandemic, but there's still that gap there. And, and according to the chamber, this lack of access to affordable childcare is an important reason why people aren't returning to the workforce. And the chamber's looking at businesses like Intel, Honda, Ford, who are looking to get up and running in Ohio, they need workers and workers are often parents. So this does seem kind of like a no brainer. But we talked to the president and CEO of the chamber, Steve Stivers, and he said there's going to be a a huge effort that's going to be required to get us across this finish line if we ever want to. He, He, you know, the chamber thinks we need to raise the threshold for child care subsidies We recently did that, but we need to go further. You know, the chamber wants raises to be waged, wages to be raised for childcare workers. And they also want to look at, you know, policy solutions that'll make it easier for folks to start childcare businesses. Sometime this week, we're going to publish a story that contains links to everything we've published so far in the Rethinking Childcare series. If you look at the sum total of the content, it's hard to argue against what the chamber is looking at. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What have we learned about J.D. Vance in his first six months as a U.S. Senator? Lisa? 
I think we've learned that he's somewhat of an enigma, which is something I've been saying for a while now. Um, the 39-year-old is among the Senate's youngest members. The former author, venture capitalist, and Marine has made bipartisan deals while still chiming in on the culture wars and supporting Donald Trump. So immediately, he worked with Democrats on a rail safety bill after the East Palestine derailment in February. He had only been in, you know, in the Senate for a month. He also was working to claw back salaries of rogue financial executives after recent big bank collapses and probing misconduct of these executives. He's also working for the Great Lakes. He's seeking federal money for Great Lakes restoration, fixing algal blooms, invasive species. And he supported the defense bill as far as the funding for projects to Ohio, but he ultimately voted against the bill because of its funding for the Ukraine war. And he worked with Democrats, Tammy Duckworth uh, of Illinois. They worked together on a bill banning the sale of products with high levels of sodium nitrate. He worked with the Democrat Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin to ensure that technology developed with taxpayer money gets made here in the U.S. But then you flip the coin. He's a vocal supporter of Trump. He's holding up Senate approval of Department of Justice nominees to protest the unprecedented political prosecution of Trump. And he also introduced a bill to prohibit gender-affirming care for minors. And his first bill as a senator was to make English the official language of the United States. So, like I said, it's two sides of a coin. But when we talk to both Democrats and Republicans who work with him, they all say he's extremely smart and hardworking, very energetic. They say he has a good personality. And Vance himself has admitted he's kind of impatient with the slow pace of, of you know, legislation and how things work in Congress. But yeah, so um, he's not like a crazy right-wing lunatic fringe like Josh Hawley. He's actually reaching across the aisle to get things done. Except... We're calling him smart, but he supports Donald Trump. He doesn't believe Donald Trump tried to overthrow our entire system of government. Full-throated support for a guy who is, by all accounts, a criminal. And I I just, I I don't know how you can say, yeah, yeah, he's an interesting guy. I mean, he's supporting a guy who tried to destroy the country. We all saw it. The charges are now coming out of the woodwork. And as long as he stands there saying that, I'm not buying he's smart because nobody with a brain looks at what happened in this country and still supports that man for president. Yeah, I wonder if just some cold political calculus on his behalf. I mean, I really don't know. But um, he says he has no problems working with Democrats, but he's endorsed Bernie Moreno in the Senate race, you know, against uh, the incumbent Sherrod Brown, who he says he works well with Sherrod Brown. But uh, Vance said that Moreno and Vance would make a hell of a team. I think what he meant was Moreno and Vance would be a team from hell. <laughs> yeah, I just, anybody who's standing at this point behind Donald Trump has serious problems, either in character because they understand what happened and they're they're denying it, or because they're too dumb to have seen it. Either way, you shouldn't be a U.S. senator if that's where you're coming down on Donald Trump. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What were doctors seeking to research about the health effects of the East Palestine train crash. Why were they spending time at the Ohio State Fair? Layla. 
Well, it's actually the Columbiana County Fair. And this this team of scientists from Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine went there to enroll locals in a, uh, a clinical study to monitor the health effects of this train derailment. Their plan is to follow these participants for five years and figure out how toxic chemical exposures from the train crash where you know things like vinyl chloride were burning and em- emitting noxious fumes may have impacted risk for for developing cancer and other metabolic diseases uh, because of of chemical damage to their DNA. The clinical study will take DNA from samples of hair, nails, saliva, or blood in people living in and around the East Palestine area and compare the amount of DNA damage to what they would expect to see in an average person. So eligible participants can earn up to $115 for completing a series of online health surveys and submitting these samples of of their hair and saliva and things like that. Gretchen Kudakroen explains the science behind the study. In a nutshell, the DNA DNA in our cells is always being damaged by exposure to a bunch of stuff in our environment. But in a healthy person, that damage is naturally repaired by the body as it occurs. But the scientists want to know if if folks who have been exposed to toxins on account of the train crash are incurring cellular damage faster than other pe- healthy people their age and and also you know for study participants early detection would mean early medical intervention potentially so th- i think it was it, they're welcome these scientists have been welcome to the community to to enroll people in the study I, it'll be fascinating to see what they find to f- see if you actually do find there has been cellular damage because of what they're exposed to it's bad stuff the people that were closest in were exposed to a lot of it so it won't be surprising if some of them have long-term effects but it's very cool that they're doing this because this will answer the question once and for all did the exposure cause real damage yeah, you know, I I was thinking about this. I I think if I were living in that area, I would definitely want to be a part of this study. If I would not want to go years without knowing what the effect would be. And you know, Gretchen spoke to one one man who said he witnessed the derailment. He was feet away from it at a local laundromat, and he showed Gretchen photos on his phone of how close he was. He said he could smell the chemicals burning. So he he knows that he was exposed, and the anxiety of that is just crippling. Uh, and he said he's happy to participate in the study. And I feel like I would, I would feel the same way. I wonder how many women were pregnant in that area when this crash happened. I, I mm. imagine that they're pretty frightened about the whole thing. Ugh. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The much-loved former Cleveland Brown Joe Thomas was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton Sunday. Courtney, what were some of the highlights of the ceremony? And I loved what his seven-year-old son was doing in the parade. (laughs) This sounded like just such a heartwarming event for Thomas and his family and Cleveland Browns. Cleveland Browns fans, he, Thomas, this weekend, he was only the seventh modern era finalist to be enshrined in his first year of eligibility for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And, and as we know, he, he had a, just a, he's a beloved guy amongst Browns fans, right? Everybody loves Joe Thomas. He had his wife there, Annie, and their four kids present him for dedication. And, and like you said, his one little boy, we, we caught a picture of him yelling at, at, at Steelers fans throughout the day. So I thought he was, he was brought up. It was hilarious. It's a great photo in his face. You could see it and he's got the thumbs down and oh my gosh, it was a, it was just a wonderful moment for, for the spirit of that family. 
Yeah, it was it was perfect. I, I was touched by that. And, you know, he had some heartwarming words when he when he took the stage, when he was addressing his kids. He shared this little anecdote. Do you remember eating peanuts off the concrete floor in Brown Stadium? I, I know your mom sure remembers <laughs> just these these cute memories. And of course, Thomas said he was on the field for more than 10,000 snaps in a row over the course of his 11 year career. He never missed one once that was over the course of 20 quarterbacks. And and it went all the way through until 2017 when he had his career ending injury. And and Thomas is such a beloved figure here. He, he never made it to the playoffs with the Browns. He gave up chances to move to other teams where he you know, may have had more success in, in the playoff arena, let alone a Super Bowl. And and he's just fiercely loyal to Cleveland. And in his remarks, he said, to the great city of Cleveland, you guys understood me from day one. And, and there was a lot of Browns love in there, it sounds like. Mary Kay Cabot had the story of the week about the love affair of him and his wife, Annie. It was loaded with detail about how she was out on a date with another guy and Joe Thomas decided to go ask for her number and, and, and reach out to her, even with the guy standing there. But one of the things they discussed is he had this heartbreaking moment in a season where they lost, they were 0-13, I guess it said, and he played what he thought was a perfect game and they still lost and he just it was crushing so that he had to get some counseling because he was working so hard, pushing his body and, and had this realization that the team I'm playing for is terrible, even though I'm at the top of my game. Great story. If you didn't see it, make sure you look it up. It's by Mary Kay Cabot. It's on cleveland.com. You'll be glad you read it. You're listening to today in Ohio. The contest for which public figure has brought the most shame to Ohio would be a tight one because we have so many candidates. Jim Jordan, Frank LaRose, Larry Householder. But we also have Sherry Tenpenny. Lisa, she's the doctor that garnered international attention with her testimony about the COVID vaccine turning us into magnets. Is she finally going to suffer the ramifications of putting us all in such an embarrassing situation? Let's hope so. The state medical board is meeting this Wednesday to act on a hearing examiner's recommendation to suspend Dr. Sherry Tenpenny's medical license and fine her $3,000. But it's not really about her outrageous claims about the COVID vaccine. It's really more because she's repeatedly failed to speak or answer questions from the board about her claims. So back in uh, June of 2021, Tenpenny was invited by Ohio Representative Jennifer Gross, the Republican from Westchester, to address the Ohio House Health Committee in June of 2021. She said, her infamous stuff, that vaccines cause uh, ALS, and cancer. It magnetizes people so they can actually stick a key to their head and it would stay. And that the vaccine interfaces with 5G towers. So, and she hasn't backed off of these statements at all. So things began a month later when an investigator sent him an email and left a business card with Tenpenny's receptionist. Tenpenny didn't answer. September of 2021, they sent questions about, you know, her statements on the vaccine and the adverse reactions. She didn't answer that. She failed to comply with an October demand to be deposed. She says she never received the letters or the emails. And then she was supposed to appear for an office conference of June of last year and didn't do that. So that's basically what they're going after her for. But like I said, it all, you know, surrounds her crazy 
things that she said about, you know, the COVID vaccine. She claims that she's been, you know, do, researching vaccines for 22 years, 55,000 hours about. So she's not just against COVID vaccines. She's an anti-vaxxer. And go ahead. Well, it, it does. Is this does she eventually play the Donald Trump card and claim, well, it's First Amendment. I can say whatever I want. I guess that's kind of an argument that everyone's going to try and use. I don't know. <laughs> it's amazing how that's being corrupted. The sacred First Amendment, the protection of free speech, is being wrapped around everybody charged with crimes now to say, well, I, I it's a, my First Amendment right. It's hilarious. Uh, it, but, uh, it'll be interesting to see if they pound her. And the fact that she stands by her, yeah. her statements in the face of all yeah, science she has, to the country. Yeah, she has no regrets. But, you know, her, her an attorney, her attorney, Tom Renz, who's also an anti-vaxxer, he's going to hold a press conference with Representative Gross outside the Board of Medicine building on Wednesday. It'll be interesting to see what they say at that press conference. He says that 10 penny statements are based on factual reports by third parties, including studies in mainstream medical journals. But Renz, he testified to the House Committee on Vaccination Policy, but the video of that testimony was actually removed from YouTube for violating the COVID misinformation policy. So this press conference should be interesting. Yeah, although if it's a bunch of wacky comments, we're not going to report the the ridiculous. If that's what they're trying to do is to get attention by saying more complete balderdash, the smart thing for the media to do is ignore it and not reprint it so that it gives life to it all over again. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Our Cleveland's Promise series wrapped up this summer after our reporters spent two academic years in a Cleveland school to chronicle the challenges they grapple with. Over the weekend, a teacher we featured prominently in the first year of the series wrote her own take. Layla, I wish I had read this story before we decided where to put it. I had to put it on the front page. It's Aww. great. What did she say? I know. This was such a touching piece by Mrs. Sharon Lenahan. She was the fourth grade teacher who welcomed our reporters, Hannah Drown and Cameron Fields, into her classroom nearly two years ago when we launched Cleveland's Promise. As we were wrapping up this project, uh, and, and shortly after Cameron had announced that the project had inspired him to leave journalism and become a teacher, I bumped into Mrs. Lenahan out and about somewhere and and she asked if she could write this personal reflection on the time that Cameron and Hannah spent with her kids. And, and yes, of course. <laughs> so she submitted this lovely essay and she talks about the ripple effect of Hannah and Cameron's presence in the classroom. They were there indeed as observers, but they forged these relationships with the kids that they were writing about. And Mrs. Lanahan tells us about how the stories and relationships profoundly affected the the kids' lives in and out of the classroom. While spending time with some of the girls and their families, Hannah learned of troubling circumstances in their home lives that prompted response from the community and and help in the form of donations and support. And, And Cameron, who Mrs. Lenahan described as a gentle giant, became a role model for the boys. She said each day he would kind of set up shop at a back table in the classroom and the boys who really looked up to him would take their schoolwork to his table just to be in his orbit. And I'm really not doing justice to the tenderness of Mrs. Lenahan's reflection on this project and and the butterfly effect of Hannah and Cameron's presence in reporting on the kids of her classroom. You really have to read it on Cleveland.com. Yeah, I can't read everything, but when I read this over the weekend, I knew I blew it. That should have been on the front page. It's a great, 
great story. A second one, read Mary Kay, read this, and you'll feel uplifted. Tremendous <laughs> writing at cleveland.com and in the Plain Dealer. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Here's a fun one. Which Cleveland area restaurants get the highest marks for photos of their fare posted by customers on social media? Courtney. Yeah, our best of team worked with Yelp Cleveland to understand, you know, where these photos are coming from and what the most most photographed restaurants and food is out there in the community. And, you know, we we learned from some research recent research as part of this reporting that maybe, you know, folks who take pictures of their their food before they eat are probably more likely to to pay attention to aesthetics and aromas and it actually makes the meal taste better. So if you want, you know, a little boost to your next meal, maybe consider taking a, a photo and putting it on Instagram. And this review kind of looked at the region around Cleveland, Cuyahoga County and neighboring counties. And the number one, which did not surprise me too much was Mabel's barbecue on East fourth street. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this list is going to make you hungry guys. I'm going to keep going. Uh, number two, Lucky's cafe in Tremont. Another, uh, kind of no brainer. If you're looking for a good meal there, number three was the great lakes brewing company in Ohio city, Cleveland icon. That makes a lot of sense. And number four, what better surroundings, for a photo, Marble Room on Euclid Avenue in downtown Cleveland. And rounding out the top five is another Tremont staple, the Bourbon Street Barrel Room, mm -hmm. which if you've been in there, you know that's a good setting to take a photo or two. Mm -hmm. Have any of you taken photos of your meals and posted them on social media? No. Layla? No. No. Courtney? I'm a bad millennial. I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> interesting. That's a good one. All right. it's a, But it's an interesting list. It, uh, when I saw it, I thought, okay, that's inventive. Let's see who the winners are. Uh, it was a little bit... Uh, Lucky's is a great place. I was just a little bit surprised that that was getting a lot of photogenic food. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for the Monday episode. Tomorrow is Election Day. We'll be talking about Issue 1 and anything else in the news. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. Coming back tomorrow for another episode.